0: We will go directly now to the Word of God. We're going to read Revelation 17. Revelation chapter 17, and our text will be 17 and 18. I'll just uh, refer to the various passages in 18 that I'll be talking about in the sermon. So, Revelation, 20, uh, Revelation chapter 17. Then... One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who was seated on many waters, with whom kings, the kings of the earth, have committed sexual immorality, and with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers on earth have become drunk. And he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names, and it had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations, and the impurities of her sexual immorality. And on her forehead was written the name of mystery, Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and of earth abominations. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. When I saw her, I marveled greatly. But the angel said to me, why do you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast with seven heads and ten horns that carries her. The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to rise from the bottomless pit and go to destruction. And the dwellers on earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will marvel to see the beast because it was and is not and is to come. This calls for a mind with wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman is seated. They are also seven kings, five of whom have fallen. One is, and the uh, one is, the other has not yet come. And when he does come, he must remain only a little while. As for the beast that was and is not, It is an eighth, but belongs to the seven, and it goes to destruction. And the ten horns that you saw are ten kings who have not yet received royal power, but they are to receive authority as kings for one hour together with the beast. These are of one mind, and they hand over their power and authority to the beast. They will make war on the lamb, and the lamb will conquer them. For he is Lord of lords and King of kings, and those with him are called and chosen and faithful. And the angel said to me, The waters that you saw where the prostitute is seated are peoples and multitudes and nations and languages. And the ten horns that you saw, they and the beast will hate the prostitute. They will make her desolate and naked and devour her flesh and burn her up with fire, for God has put it into their hearts to carry out his purpose by being of one mind and handing, handing over their royal power to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. And the woman that you saw is the great city that has dominion, Over the kings of the earth. So far, the reading of God's holy word. Revelations 17 and 18 are about the sinful world and its opposition to God. It's described using the symbol of the wicked city of Babylon, which in turn is symbolized by the image of a great prostitute. Throughout the Bible, The city of Babylon opposes God and thus becomes a symbol of the world in opposition to God. The prostitute is an obvious symbol of sexual immorality, but sexual immorality often stands for immorality as a whole. There are all kinds of details mentioned in these two chapters. We're not going to look at many of them, but we'll be thinking about the general picture That is being drawn in the main applications that the text makes for the people of God. What stands out in the description of the great prostitute is her immorality. Verse 4 of chapter 17 gives us enough of the picture. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. She is a thoroughly repulsive figure. And that gives us some idea of the way in which God views the world in its sin, and that in turn informs us of the true nature of sin. It's a picture of gaudiness and uncleanness. The text uses the terms abominations and impurities. Significant that the the picture includes luxuries. The prostitute is arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls. Now wealth itself is not evil, but it is often associated with evil in the Bible, and we see that very often in life as well. The picture here of the prostitute combines conspicuous wealth and debauchery. The description of wicked Babylon as a prostitute includes luxurious living and sexual immorality. These are symbols of the seductions of the world living in rebellion against God. This is the world in which we live, a society characterized by luxurious living and sexual immorality and blasphemy and idolatry and hatred of the followers of Jesus Christ. Verse 6 of chapter 17 says, And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. Now chapter 17 also teaches that the world in its rebellion against God is self-destructive. Verses 16 and 17, And the ten horns that you saw, they and the beast will hate the prostitute, They will make her desolate and naked and devour her flesh and burn her up with fire. For God has put it into the hearts to carry out his purpose of being of one mind and handing over their royal power to the beast until the word of God is fulfilled. Here, The key here is that the world in its opposition to God is self-destructive. The world is united in its opposition to God, but since the people that make up the world are wicked, they are self-centered and hateful, and so there is conflict and there is malice between them. Part of the judgment of God on the world has to do with the fact that sinners ultimately hate and destroy one another. And the text tells us that God has a role in that, showing it's part of his plan and part of his judgment upon wickedness. Verse 17 says that God has put it into their hearts to carry out his purpose. We see this very clearly in our time. The more thoroughly our society rejects the Christian heritage, the more it descends into hatred and chaos and bloodshed and disunity. The Bible says that the wages of sin is death and the further that society departs from God, the more it becomes a culture of death. The wicked prey on one another. Love comes from God, and the further from God a society drifts, the more self, selfish and hatred dominate. Selfishness and hatred. This passage teaches that in describing the ten horns and the, he, and the beast hating The prostitute. The overall message of these chapters is how God will destroy the wicked city of Babylon. Verse 14 of chapter 17 says. They will make war on the Lamb, and the Lamb will conquer them, for He is the Lord of lords and the King of kings, and those with Him are called and chosen. Chapter 18, verse 2 says, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable beast. And then verse uh, chapter 18 goes on to, Uh, on and on about the destruction of the wicked city of Babylon. That is reason for rejoicing in heaven and among the people of God. 1820 says, Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you saints and apostles and prophets, for God has given judgment for you against her. So we have a picture of the world in the gaudiness and filth of its immorality and the judgment of God upon her, both by means of self-destruction and by means of being conquered by the Lamb, who is the Lord of lords and the King of kings. And in the middle of all of that, we have a call to the people of God. Verse 18, 4 and 5. Then I heard another voice from heaven saying, come out of her, my people lest you take part of her sins, lest you share in her plagues, for her sins are heaped high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. It's this call to come out of her that I want to dwell on with you this morning. We are living in the midst of a sinful world. God's people have always lived in the midst of a sinful world. Our time is no different The symbol of the gaudy prostitute is an apt description of the world in our time. The chaos and the brokenness and the turmoil and the hatred are already God's judgment upon people who are living in rebellion against God. And the Bible assures us that there is more judgment to come. But God's call to us is to come out of her, lest we take part in her sins and lest we share in her plagues this call is addressed to God's people the whole book is addressed to the church the people under God's judgment are referred to in chapter 17:8 as the dwellers on earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world and that applies of course that God's people are those whose names have been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world This emphasizes the security of the people of God, but it also emphasizes the sheer graciousness of salvation. If we belong to God's people, it is because he has written our name in the book of life from the foundation of the world. We cannot look down at the wicked people of the world as though we are somehow superior to them. Apart from God's grace, we are no different from the most immoral person. We are sinners saved by grace. God's choice is the decisive move as far as our salvation is concerned, not anything that we do. God's purpose in choosing us was for the praise of his glorious grace, according to Ephesians one six. When we look out at the world, in its rebellion against God, we should also always do so with profound humility, knowing that apart from the grace of God, we would be part of that world. As Paul writes in Ephesians 2, 1 and 2, before God made us alive in Christ, we were dead in the trespasses and sins in which we once walked following the course of this world. And we by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. By nature we are like the rest of mankind. And that is something that we must never forget. But we've been delivered from it. We have been made alive in Christ. And therefore we are no longer dead in our trespasses and sins in which we once walked. We no longer follow the course of this world. We are no longer children of wrath like the rest of mankind. By God's grace, we have been rescued. God has delivered us from the dominion, domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son. And so we are no longer part of the world in rebellion against God. We are in the world, but not of the world. And as such, we are called to come out of the wicked city of Babylon, lest we take part in her sins and share in her plagues. Like Lot of the Old Testament, who with his family was called to flee from the city of Sodom to escape the fire and brimstone that were about to be poured out upon her. Christians are called to come out of Babylon, the wicked city of man in rebellion against God, to escape the plagues that are about to fall upon her. This call to live differently from the sinful world, this is a call, this is a call to live differently from the sinful world in the midst of which we are living. It is a call to separation from the world. It is a call to resist taking part in the sins of the world. It's a very common theme in the scriptures. Romans 12, 2, Paul tells us, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Second Corinthians 6, 17, quoting from the Old Testament, Paul writes, Therefore, go out from her midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. In 1 Peter one fourteen and 15, Paul writes, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. And then we have 1 John 2. Revelation 17 and 18 describe for us the wicked city of Babylon using the symbol of a prostitute, and it urges us to come out of that city, not to take part in her sins so that we do not share in her plagues. The wicked symbol of Babylon is symbolized as a brazen prostitute, and that is a picture of the wicked world in which we live, and God calls us to separate ourselves from that wicked world by not taking part in her sins, So' we're to be different from the world, from the sinful world. That term, world, is used in the Bible in a number of ways. Sometimes it can simply refer to the, cre- the whole of the creation. It's actually used that way in in Revelation 17, verse 8, where we read of those whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world. The term there refers to the creation. But many times the term world refers to unsaved people of the world in their rebellion against God. That's the way that I'm using it. Uh, When I say that this passage is teaching us that Christians are to be different from the world, we're to live differently, in that we are not to be conformed to the sinful way of life that characterizes the world. I want us to look at two of the sins that are mentioned that are most prominent in these chapters, which describe Babylon as the great prostitute. The image of a prostitute is an, <clears throat> is an image of sexual immorality, and sexual immorality is mentioned a number of times in the text. The idea of sexual immorality here refers to more than just sexual sin, but it certainly does include sexual sin. Sexual immorality characterizes the world in rebellion against God, and that has always been the case. The Old Testament speaks against sexual sin, one of the Ten Commandments forbids Adultery, Jesus spoke against sexual sin. The New Testament letters often speak against sexual sin, and here in our text, the world in rebellion against God is symbolized as a prostitute. Clearly, sexual sin is a a prominent characteristic of humanity in its rebellion against God. It's obviously a prominent characteristic of the world today the world that we are surrounded by, the world that seeks to conform us to its likeness. We are living in a time of extreme sexual immorality. It has always been part of the lifestyle of the world in rebellion against God, but certainly since the Second World War, it has become more and more blatant uh, to the point where there is very little restraint, where it is celebrated, sexual immorality is celebrated as normal, And healthy. And now the common understanding is that it is healthy to (coughs) fulfill your sexual desires pretty much any way that you desire them, any way that you please. There are still a few limitations, but for the most part, any form of gratification, sexual gratification, is considered to be legitimate and healthy as long as it is between consenting adults. And so it is the norm now for young people, unmarried people, to be sexually active. It is the norm for young people to be sexually active before marriage. Common law relationships are almost as common as married relationships. Homosexual relationships are common, and there is incredible pressure in society society to affirm them as healthy and normal Homosexual marriage is now permitted and celebrated. Pornography is a vast uh, reality on the internet. Prostitution is barely illegal. All forms of sexual perversions are common and considered to be legitimate expressions of sexual preference. God calls his people to reject all forms of sexual immorality and to reserve sex for the intimacy within the marriage of one man and one woman. That simple biblical proposition is now considered to be hateful and harmful and bigoted, but it is the clear and unambiguous teaching of the word of God. Within the biblical perspective, sex within marriage is beautiful and is a wholesome thing. Sex outside of marriage is impure and abominable, and that is the language that is used in our text. The pressure on us to conform is tremendous. In many of the stories that our culture that our culture tells, sex outside of marriage is portrayed as wholesome and inevitable and beautiful, while the biblical teaching is portrayed as harmful and hopelessly outdated. There's tremendous influence, shaping influence in those stories. The ease with which, with which pornography is, addressed, is accessed is a tremendous temptation. Temptation. The way in which homosexuality is affirmed in our society and traditional sexual morality disparaged puts us under great pressure to conform our thinking to what what has become the norm in the world. The way that this passage portrays sexual immorality is God's revelation of the truth. Sexual immorality in all its forms is impure. It is an abomination to God, and those who indulge in it without repenting belong to this city called Babylon, which is headed for destruction. And we are being called to separate ourselves from all of that, from that way of living, and to live lives of purity as that is defined by the Word of God. And it's important to see that God's will for sex and marriage and and self-control and celibacy for those who are not in a biblical marriage, God's will is beautiful and wholesome and pure, and it is the way of the fullness of life. The call to abstain from sexual immorality in all of its forms is a call from the way of pain and death to the way of life and flourishing. The biblical teaching about sex and marriage is beautiful and life-giving and intimately related to our relationship with God itself. Marriage is the reflection of the relationship between God and his people, between Jesus and his church. Biblical marriage is something that points beyond itself to the relationship between Christ and the church. And what that means is that those who are not married can experience what marriage points to in their relationship with Jesus. One of the true symbolized in christian marriage is that christian marriage points beyond itself to the relationship between christ and his church in which the ultimate fulfillment is to be found one of the truths symbolized by christian singleness is that marriage is not necessary for fullness of life because the ultimate fulfillment is found in relationship between Christ and his church so sexual <clears throat> purity in all of its manifestations is about fullness of life in relationship with Christ and sexual impurity in all of its forms makes the statement that the fulfillment of our sexual urges is more satisfying more fulfilling more valuable than being the bride of Christ. So the call to flee from sexual immorality and to be sexual pure is a call to witness to the fullness of life that is found in Christ. Now the, ter- <clears throat> the text also has a few references to luxurious living. The prostitute is portrayed as being arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup. And then later on in chapter 18, the city of Babylon is described as having made the merchants of the earth rich from the power of her luxurious living. In eighteen seventeen seven says of the city, she glorified herself and lived in luxury. And there are more similar references in chapter 18. So this too is what Christians are called to separate themselves from. The Bible often brings immorality and overindulgence in luxury together. When we as believers are called to avoid being conformed to the world, we are also being called to separate ourselves from sinful Self-indulgence. Now, that doesn't mean that we should aim to be poor. It doesn't mean that it is wrong to experience wealth and prosperity. God has created us and the rest of creation in such a way that it's clearly his will that we experience joyment and pl- enjoyment and pleasure in life. He's called us to work, to be productive in many situations, that will lead to prosperity. The Bible does not glorify poverty as a better way to live. It is part of the way that God created us that we are motivated to work, to provide for ourselves and our families, and that includes to have more than the bare minimum that we need to survive. The, Bi- the Bible doesn't call us to be guilty about to feel guilty about prospering. if that prosperity comes through honest hard work using the abilities that God has given us. This can all be done to the glory of God. It's part of the way that God intends to be glorified in his creation. But because of sin, our desires have become disordered so that we are prone to greed and overindulgence. We have the command, you shall not covet, which <clears throat> forbids excessive desires for things that we do not have. It's one thing to have a healthy desire to make financial progress in our lives. It becomes sinful when the desire for more money and things and pleasures dominates our lives. Jesus tells us in Matthew six twenty four that we cannot serve God and money. He condemned the scribes and the Pharisees because they were full of greed and self-indulgence. In Luke twelve fifteen, he says, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And in 1 Timothy 6, 9 and 10, Paul says, but those who desire to be rich <clears throat> fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is, at, is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs." The world in its rebellion against God is characterized by greed and covetousness and self-indulgence and by many and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. The Lord gives us much to enjoy and we may do so with thanksgiving, but He is more important. He must, is to be more important to us than our money and our possessions so that we seek to use whatever money and possessions that he gives us in a way that is pleasing to him. So that will mean contentment with what he has given us. It will mean thanksgiving for the good things that we enjoy. It will mean moderation and self-control. It will mean thinking in terms of stewardship, being generous with our tithes and offerings, being generous in helping the poor. (coughs) <coughs> the way that we use our money must reflect seeking first the kingdom of God, living for God rather than living for ourselves, living lives of love and generosity in our interactions with other people. So when God calls us in Revelation eighteen four. To come out of the wicked Babylon, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues. He is calling us to separate ourselves from greed and self indulgence of the world, which worships self rather than God. And again, he's not calling us from more joy to less joy, he's not calling us from more satisfaction to less satisfaction. He is, in fact, calling us to life rather than death. He is calling us away from freedom, away from bondage into freedom. We are designed by God to flourish by living for him and in service to others. To live for self and to live for pleasure is slavery. It is the way of emptiness. It is the way of superficial pleasures rather than profound joy and fulfillment in God and in serving God. When God calls us away from the ways of the world, he's calling us away from the way of death and into the way of life. The symbols of Revelation 17 and 18 of the great prostitute and the condemned city of Babylon give us a sense of the tawdry and sleazy and destructive nature of life in rebellion against God. And it makes it clear that the world that lives that way is heading towards the judgment of God. And the call for us to come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues, for her sins are heaped. High as heaven, and God has remembered Her iniquities, that's how this passage calls us to come out of uh, the sinful Babylon. God refers to the ones he is calling to separate themselves from the world as my people. They are the people whose names have been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world. Chapter 17, verse 14 describes them as being with the Lamb who will conquer the beast and the prostitute. They are described there as called and chosen and faithful. The Lamb is the Lamb who was slain and who is alive forevermore, and he gave himself for our sins to deliver us from this present evil age. What we have been thinking about in this sermon is one of the ways that he does that. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you also for this part of your word. We thank you for these These graphic symbols that show us so much about the ugliness of sin and the wages of sin. We see it described before us in the judgments that fall upon the prostitute and the the wicked city. We acknowledge, Father, that we are no different than others by nature That apart from your grace in our lives, we would be right there with them. That any differences that exist, exist because you have chosen us before the foundation of the world. And you have drawn us to the Lord Jesus Christ. We are so grateful for that. And we pray that we may also be grateful for your call to flee from the sinfulness of the world, to be, to not to be like them, not to be conformed to this world, but to be, to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. We pray that reflecting on these two verses, these two chapters in the book of Revelation may be part of that, uh, transforming our minds and renewing our minds lord we thank you for the fullness of life that you have for your people that you have ordained for your people and we pray that you would help us always to see the emptiness and the futility of the way of the world lord there are parts of it that are attractive to us but we pray, we pray that you would through Passages like this show us the truth, the reality, the ugliness, and the the, um, futility of uh, the ways of the world. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. To take part in the Lord's Supper is to reaffirm our commitment to live lives of obedience. The actions that we take in partaking can be understood today as our response to this sermon, affirming to God and to one another that we are indeed committed to separating ourselves from the sinful way of life that characterizes those who live in rebellion against God. But it's not a claim that we can do that in our own strength. We certainly make a commitment to obedience when we take part in the Lord's Supper. But we do so not making that commitment relying on our own strength, but rather we do so looking to the Lord to provide, to strengthen us, to nourish us. That too is part of the meaning of the Lord's Supper, by feeding on Christ by faith. Our commitment is strengthened. Furthermore, we come confessing our sins. By grace, we are to repent from our sins and avoid uh, many sins, but we will still fall and fail. We must confess that we have not completely avoided the sins of the world around us, that we are not as pure as we should be, that we are not free of inordinate desire for money and things. And when we hear God calling us to live differently from the world, we will be aware that often we are too much like the world. Now, if we are just living like the world without any restraint, then we are under the same judgment as the world. But if the sins that we commit are a burden to us, and if we are fighting against them, then the Lord's Supper is instituted to comfort and to encourage and to strengthen us. It's a memorial of Jesus' death for our sins. In it, Jesus offers himself to us as the one who died and who rose again. In the symbols of the bread and the wine, he gives himself to us as our Savior who has died so that we might be forgiven and renewed.